Today's reading is taken from Colossians chapter 3, and it's verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. As we reflect on that short reading, let's first pray. Lord God, we pray that you will speak to us through your word. We pray that we might have responsive hearts, ears to listen and wills to obey. In your name, amen. Imagine a job advert that read something like this. Help wanted. A menial job with no pay except for accommodation and food. No days off. No holidays. On call, 24 hours a day. No opportunities for advancement. No benefits. Once accepted for employment, the management has a legal right to beat you or even kill you if it sees fit. Any takers here? <laughs> well, that was a job description that fitted the situation of many of those in the Church of Colossae, whom Paul was writing to in those words of our reading today. They were slaves. They were owned by their masters and regarded in the Roman world as a piece of property, not as proper human beings at all. They had no rights. And the passage that Denise has just read to us comes in the middle of some instructions to Christian households on how slaves and their masters should relate to one another. Christian slaves were encouraged to obey their masters in everything. And in turn, their masters were encouraged to provide rightly and fairly for their slaves. And interest, interestingly, Paul devotes more space to this topic than he does to the relationships between Christian husbands and wives, between relationships between uh, Christian parents and children. He probably did this because along with the letter to the Colossians, he was um, sending the runaway slave, Onesimus, um, that Paul had led back to Christ in Rome. He was sending them back to his master, Philemon, in Colossae. And we have that letter in our Bibles also, Paul's letter to Philemon about that runaway slave. They were both sent at the same time. So although these words of Paul, they were originally intended for slaves and their masters, the principles behind them that we've just had read out, they're as relevant to us as Christians today as they were to the slaves in that first century Colossae. And it's some of those principles that I'd like to explore today in the context of our final talk in our Framework for Freedom uh, series. 
But before I go any further, let me just do a brief recap on what we've covered so far in the series. Um, Framework for Freedom, it's the name that we've given to the series on building a rule of life, putting certain things into place in our lives that will help us to grow as disciples of Jesus. Rather like a trellis supporting a plant, and we have that trellis there. Um, with the particular topics in our rule of life that we've covered. So we've covered the sort of the roots, if you like, the fundamentals of our Christian lives on the bottom row. That's uh, Sabbath, prayer, scripture. The branches, if you like, the middle bit that we might put into place to look after ourselves, our our self-care, our leisure, um, those people that we have responsibility for, our families, our friends. And today, we're looking at that top tier, the final tier, the fruit, if you like. We're turning our lives, um, our eyes outwards. And I'm going to be focusing on the principles that lay, lay behind serving God in the world, in our work, in our service, our witness, and our money. Paul said in our reading, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. So our first and perhaps our overriding principle is to make Christ Lord of our work, whatever we do. Whether we're uh, an employer or an employee, or whether we're retired and our front line in the world outside is maybe voluntary work, a social group, grandparenting responsibilities, etc. It's our relationship with Christ which should transform the way we act, whatever we do. Making Christ Lord of our work has four important implications, as Paul explains in these very few verses. Firstly, if Christ is Lord, then our workplace or our front line in the world, whatever that might be, that front line is our mission field. What would it have looked like to the slaves that Paul was originally addressing here? Although they were a piece of property owned by their master, by their distinctive daily work habits and and perhaps their occasional verbal witness, they were Christ's representatives. I wonder if you remember the Old Testament story of Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy. He had a young Hebrew girl, girl as his slave, and she suggested to Naaman's wife that Elisha the prophet in Israel could cure Naaman. Naaman went to Elisha and After a bit of initial resistance, he submitted to the the prophet's simple direction to dip seven times in the Jordan River. He was instantly cured. And I use that story to just show that even an insignificant slave girl was, in this case, a missionary to this influential Syrian. However unpromising our front lines might seem, in terms of Christian witness, we have the opportunities to be a witness to people who may otherwise have absolutely no contact with a church or a faith community. 
God can use us if he is Lord of our work. And secondly, if Christ is Lord, then we'll work at whatever we do with all our heart and not just for outward show. I think we've probably all come across folk who put on a very good show of working diligently when others of influence are around, you know, particularly if it's the boss or uh, in church circles, maybe the vicar. <laughs> so, you know, ask yourself this question. What's your main motivation in doing any particular job? Is it, for example, you're afraid of losing it if you're seen to be incompetent? Or, or maybe... You enjoy the status that a particular role brings. It's the kind of motivation that the, where the primary focus is how we appear to other people. Or, on the other hand, is our main motivation that we want to do a good job because it's honouring to God, regardless as how that might appear to others. Now, of course... Our motives are usually a mixture of wanting to work both for the Lord and for other people. Nevertheless, I think it can be good to pause once in a while just to examine afresh our motives for the things that we do and, and ask ourselves the question, who are we really serving here? Which brings me to my next point. If Christ is Lord, then ultimately... We're serving Christ, not other people. And I, I love the last verse of the hymn that we've just sung, the, the Servant King. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we're serving. And I think one of the things that best characterizes Christian discipleship is a servant heart. Whatever our role or status, whether we're a leader or a team member, a master chef or on the coffee rotor, as Christians, we're primarily there to serve Christ. And in so doing, we serve each other. A person with a servant heart is willing to take care of the small things. No task is, was beneath Jesus. He washed feet, he helped lepers, he made food for his disciples, all to the best of his ability. A person with a servant heart will selflessly and sacrificially serve others, regardless of their feelings towards them, or what it might cost them. So how do we develop a servant heart? Well, I think we begin by imitating Christ, recognizing that in everything that we do, we are his servants. And lastly, if Christ is Lord, then we are able to appreciate the eternal perspective and sort of take a long view of our life on earth. Paul said, you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. Now, for a society where slaves had no legal or property rights, this was a really radical concept. Even though they were disenfranchised on earth, 
they could know that the Lord would reward them richly in eternity. Now, I want to put a caveat in at this point. Um, I don't think we should misuse this, for, this verse to be indifferent to or condone injustice. Um, some of our loudest opponents of slavery many centuries later were Christians. But appreciating that this life is not all there is enables us to hold very much more loosely any earthly rewards that might come our way in the form of salaries or recognition or advancement. We hold them lightly because this world is not all there is. Our work may come or may have come in the past with generous monetary rewards. Whilst this isn't true for everyone, most people in Claygate have a comfortable standard of living and in spite of our rather turbulent economic times have a measure of disposable income. And one of the final categories on that trellis is money and how we might use that to serve God in the world. The 16th century English statesman and philosopher Francis Bacon is somewhat of a favorite of mine. He's actually attributed to being the founder of the scientific method, a systematic methodology based on observational science, which is really the foundations of, of scientific, the scientific disciplines to this day. Uh, you probably don't know that, because his remarks about money are probably a lot better known. And here's a couple. Money is a good servant, but a bad master. And money is like muck, not good, unless it be spread. Money can be a huge tool for achieving good, if, like muck, it is spent and spread in the right places. But whether this happens or not depends on our attitude to it. Bacon's quote about money being a good servant but a bad master sits quite nicely along our early, alongside our earlier reflections about making Christ Lord of our work. So I'll leave you with a question to ponder. Who is master when it comes to our finances? Jesus taught us that we are stewards of our material possessions. Stewards, not masters. Indeed, as we are stewards of the whole of God's creation. And uh, there's a, a sense that they're on loan to us, to be used responsibly for the good of others and ourselves, of course. There's a prayer that we used to say in the days when we ceremoniously handed the offering to the service leader on a, a, in a, a Sunday, in the Sunday service. Um, you may remember it. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own do we give you. It's a, it's a good prayer to reflect on. As we close this series, I'm aware that we'll all have had different levels of engagement with the overall theme of creating a personal rule of life. Some of you will have probably have one already, a rule of life already, and, and this series has hopefully been a, a helpful reminder to take a look at it again, to see whether your circumstances have changed since you've made it and whether it's, um, you know, just wants a bit of modification. 
So if that's you, could I encourage you to just take a bit of time out to reflect on whether your current rhythm of life is the best that it can be for your present circumstances. Now, I confess that I'm a bit of a workaholic and retirement hasn't really been something that I've embraced. Um, one of the upsides of recently having a mild dose of COVID, um, it's probably the only upside, I have to say, um, was that I was forced to cancel quite a lot of my work stuff. I stay at home and slow down. And I have to say, especially in the good weather, <laughs> I was really rather enjoying it. Um, and it made me have a bit of a rethink about my own work-life balance and, and whether I need to adjust that a bit for the future. Some of you may be small group members and will have been following the midweek more practical sessions. And so you will have probably gone quite a long way in creating your own personal rules of life. So if that's you, I would encourage you just not to put the course booklet away at the end of the series, move on to something else, but just spend a bit of time completing it if you haven't already. And if you have completed it, just put a note in your diary for a couple of months' time to renew it to see how you're getting on. But there may be some of you here that haven't been able to attend on Sundays for the whole series. You might be a visitor here who's come across the idea of a rule of life for the first time. There's a radio program called Just One Thing where presenter Michael Molesley, um, is it Molesley or Mo Mosley? Not sure, anyway. Um, he, he reveals one simple way each week to boost a person's health and well-being. And just one thing, if you haven't made a start on making a rule of life, then could I encourage you to put just one thing into place? Either something from what I've been talking about today uh, that God's laid on your heart or something from a previous week that you haven't yet actioned. It will be a first step in this particular journey of discipleship. And as the Chinese proverb says, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. The overriding principle of all of this is to bring God into every corner of our lives, to live out Jesus' first and greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. It's a life that's real, one that is truly worth living. And as I end, I'd like to remind you once again of some words of Jesus that we used to introduce the very first session of this sermon series, some words from Matthew 11 that I'm going to read from the message, uh, the message version. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. As disciples of Jesus, as we follow him and the framework for freedom that he offers, may we indeed learn the unforced rhythms of grace, of his grace, and learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.